Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that, Lord, especially during Christmas time right now and the holiday season, truly, Lord, Jesus is the reason for the season. He is the reason why we are here. He is the reason why we have an opportunity to enjoy sweet fellowship with one another because of the fact that he has saved us from our sins. Help us to keep our focus um, upon him and our eyes fixed upon him, the author and perfecter of our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope that you enjoyed um, your Thanksgiving holiday. Um, you guys have some good food? Yes? yes? Wonderful. Wonderful. You know, one of the things that I really enjoy about Thanksgiving is all of the wonderful combinations of foods that you could put together. And maybe people in other countries don't, don't get our American traditions, right, of just the Thanksgiving dinners that we have and all of that, and maybe some of the combos. But I love how delicious food tastes that it's, is, is a good mix, right? Um, think about, like, gravy and mashed potatoes. I know I'm going to make you guys hungry right now, right? I'm not helping myself here. If you're going to have to sit through an hour or less sermon, and then you, I'm talking about food right now. Stuffing and turkey. Good combination? Very good combination. Cranberry then slathered all over everything. Like people in other countries probably don't even get that's like what they put what over their food, but those are great combinations, aren't they? Things that go together that really um, allow us to enjoy a Thanksgiving meal. But you know there are some things in life that don't go well together, that just don't mix, that are not compatible with one another. Here are some examples: toothpaste and orange juice. Maybe some of you, or did you have that, Alex, as one of the fear factor thing? No? Maybe next time, right? One of the youth activities, toothpaste and orange juice. Will any youth do that? Cats and water just don't go together, right, pet lovers? Um, a steady diet of fried foods and a long life. That just doesn't happen, right? Here is one that's going to hurt for us Dodger fans. Clayton Kershaw and the playoffs. Giants fans are saying, yes, amen to that, brother. Just doesn't seem to go together, right? How about for you, you young, young moms especially, toddlers and sleep. Just doesn't go together, right? Children and Sharpies. Think about it. How many couches have been ruined because of Sharpies, because of our kids, right? Here's another one. Marital faithfulness and Hollywood. Mm. <laughs> I love how there wasn't any laughing. It's more like, oh, sadness, right? Here's one. Always have to be right and a happy marriage. Incompatible, right? Got to die selflessly and not always want to be right. Here's another one. Your spouse and your mother. Oh, I'm going to get myself into trouble here, so I should probably end this pretty soon. But here's one last one. Fashion and Eastern Europe. All right, maybe that wasn't that good, right? These are all things that are incompatible, right? They don't mix well together. And there are many other examples that I'm sure you could think of as well. But here's one that is not so funny and maybe humorous for us. And it's really the title of our message, or goes along the title of our message, Religion and Jesus. Religion and Jesus. And by religion, I mean a, a set of beliefs or, or practices by which you seek from the heart to appease a holy God, to gain favor with Him, to be justified by your works. And maybe you hold that, you look down your nose upon others who don't practice the same things that you do in a self-justifying kind of way. Jesus and religion don't mix. You can't merge Christ and religion, right? You can't merge Christianity with any religion in the world. And even when Jesus walked on the face of this planet, he made it very, very clear that he was not one way to salvation, but he is the only way, the truth, and the life. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we can have salvation. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we can experience joy and peace with God. It comes through Jesus Christ. Amen? Jesus made that very, very clear. And this is what we want to think about this morning from our passage. Because here's yet another 
tense encounter in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, our text, with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. You know, people um, continue to come and hear Jesus, and people do love and are enamored by the things that Jesus does and the miracles of great power that he performs, but especially the religious leaders don't appreciate his claims concerning himself. We've already seen in, in the context before uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, that Jesus heals this paralytic in, in Mark chapter 2. But the, the real thing that got under the skin of the religious leaders is the fact that he claimed to, to forgive the sins of this paralyzed, paralyzed man who has been healed. Claiming to be God with that very um, statement about the forgiveness of sins because only God can forgive sins. And so the religious leaders don't appreciate that. And there's growing hostility against our Lord because of that. And then, as if it wasn't enough, he is interacting with people in Mark that he shouldn't be interacting with from the perspective of other people, such as the worst of sinners, at least from the human perspective at that time, tax collectors, who were seen as the lowest of the low, as traitors to their own Jewish people. And so people were hostile to these individuals, these tax collectors. And Jesus calls Matthew, the tax collector, in chapter 2, verses 14 and following, to follow after him. He forgives a man who was an enemy of the, Jewish, <clears throat> of the Jewish people. And they don't like this. There's opposition because of that. Why is your master, why is your Lord interacting with tax collectors and sinners, with the worst of, of people who are social outcasts, who are hated ones? And to top it off, Jesus then goes to an evangelistic party right smack in the home of Matthew the tax collector. And there are all kinds of friends that he invites to this. And here is Jesus, our Lord, in an unconventional way, according to the standards of that day and age, in the home of a tax collector, interacting with people, witnessing concerning himself. And the religious leaders don't like this. And it's on the heels of this, beloved, that all of this tension and growing hostility against Jesus that we have chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, which is another um, tense moment or occasion that Mark records for us, where now you have these individuals come in in verse 22 or verse um, 18, come in and grilling our Lord about why it is that his disciples are not fasting, but John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting. What's up with that? Why are your disciples, Jesus, different than us? Why are they not following the rules? Why are they violating what God says? And so Jesus, we're going to see, uses the question and the, the inquiry about fasting to expose the self-righteous hypocrisy of these individuals who come to him. So let's read our text in chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. <clears throat> John's disciples, verse 18 of Mark 2, and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skin as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. And the Lord blessed the reading of his word. From our passage this morning, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, we want to see that our Lord teaches us that he's exclusively the only way to eternal life, that you and I might find our rest and joy in him alone. That's what we want to see from this passage, that Jesus is exclusively the only way to eternal life is his message to these individuals so that you and I might find our rest and live joyfully in him alone. And that part is especially important, beloved. That we might find joy in Jesus alone, especially during this time where there's a lot of, of talk and conversation about joy and happiness. Some people are really depressed, and so they put on a facade on the outside, and eventually that's exposed. But there are other people who, frankly, are very genuinely saying that they are happy for many things without Jesus Christ. But as we're going to see in the future... 
when Jesus returns, all of that happiness and joy that isn't aimed at, isn't based upon Jesus Christ will pass away, won't it? It will pass away. So Jesus Christ is the one that we need to focus our attention on, especially during this holiday seasons that we might experience joy. Now we see this by looking at the primary, two primary points here in our passage. We want to see, first of all, in verse 18, the judgmental inquisition. The judgmental inquisition in verse 18. And then in verses 19 through 22, we want to see the gracious instruction. The gracious instruction of our Lord. Mark tells us, if you notice in verse 18... That John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And that they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? From the evidence that we get in the parallel accounts in Matthew and Luke, it seems like Jesus is still in Matthew, the tax collector's home, when these individuals come to him and are asking him these questions, or this particular question about, about fasting. Now, there are two sets of individuals that get together here, interestingly. Remember that prior to the public appearance of Jesus, John the Baptist, in the early chapters of John, especially the Gospel of John, is preaching a a baptism of repentance. But upon the public appearance of Jesus, and Jesus coming to be baptized by John the Baptist, John begins to point his followers, those devoted to him, to Jesus. And he says, I must decrease, but he must increase. He is the one. He is the bridegroom. And I am the friend of the bridegroom. You guys need to follow him. Well, some of John's disciples probably followed Jesus from that point. But many others didn't. And here you have some of John the Baptist's followers here. Um, John the Baptist, by this time, as we're going to find out later on in in the gospel narratives, has been now imprisoned by Herod. And he's going to eventually be beheaded. And so John's disciples most likely are fasting as a symbol of mourning and sorrow because John the Baptist, their master with a little M, if you will, is is, uh, imprisoned. So that's why they're fasting, these disciples of John. Now the Pharisees are a completely different deal, right? By Jesus' day... Fasting was a completely different deal than what Scripture or the Old Testament um, articulated. By Jesus' day, fasting had become a a self-justifying practice and a way to even look down their noses upon other people who didn't fast in the same way that they did. Now, you need to understand the Old Testament scriptures only commanded one day of national fasting. And that day was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur in Leviticus chapter 16. That was the national day of fasting. But by the time of Jesus, there were additional fasts that in the culture of Judaism, people were expected, even if they weren't explicitly always told, they were expected if they were committed Jews to practice other fasts. In fact, the Pharisees themselves fasted twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays. And it wasn't like these Pharisees practiced fasting secretly, inconspicuously before God and from the heart. In fact, if you turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 6, to the Sermon on the Mount, go there with me to Matthew chapter 6. I want you to see this. That there were three primary practices that the religious leaders of Jesus' day especially emphasized were part of the, of the truly devoted Jew of the day. The truly devoted giving, prayer, and fasting. And Jesus wasn't against these. But he addresses what the culture had become. And how people practice these particular things of almsgiving and prayer and fasting. In Matthew chapter 6 verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. By Jesus' day, one of the things that he, he opposes and he preaches against is, a, is an outward external form of religion that is basically to please men, not please God from the heart, not for God's glory. That was the culture of the day. And so notice all three of the practices. He addresses how they ought to be given to the poor, how they ought to pray, and how they ought to fast. Verse 2, So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, verse 3, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
Look at verse 5 about prayer. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. And he goes on to talk about when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, pray in secret before your heavenly Father who, who sees you, and He will reward you in secret. Notice fasting in verse 16. Whenever you fast... Do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, verse 17, anoint your head and wash your faith, face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret excuse me, will reward you. You see, Jesus wasn't against those practices. But what he counters, as he says in chapter 6, verse 1, is a self-righteous outward form of religion that was all to please men, not to please God, out of a right heart motivation to worship him. That's what Jesus counters. That was the problem the Pharisees had. In fact, in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, Jesus tells the parable of a, of a Pharisee and a tax collector who go before God in the temple, and both of them pray. And he says, and you know what the, what the Pharisee was doing? He was praying in his heart, God, I thank you that I don't do all of these sins, and he names all kinds of sins, and that also I pay tithes of all that I get, and I fast twice a week, and he goes on and on, and I thank you that I am not like this tax collector. Right? And over in the back, not even being able to look up to God and pray to God, this tax collector is there, and he's beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This man was broken before God. He recognized his utter spiritual bankruptcy before God, and he was pleading for the mercy of God. And Jesus' punchline is, who do you think goes home justified? It is the man, the tax collector, who sees his utter unworthiness and pleads for the mercy of God, and the other one did not, i.e. he was self-righteous. He thought that he could earn God's favor by the things that he did, and he compared himself to other people and elevated himself above other people, namely in that context, the tax collector, quote-unquote, the worst kinds of sinners, right? So even Jesus was countering that kind of apostate Judaism of the day where people were practicing things just to be man-pleasers. I mean, these Pharisees were hypocrites. They fasted and they did all these things just for show to please men. They would literally, beloved, walk around sheepishly in a melancholy kind of a way with dust and ashes all over their heads, disheveled, messed up all over the place, maybe throw some extra dirt all over themselves to make sure people understood how devoted and pious they were. That was what they were characterized by. They wanted to be known as people who were devoted and pious, they used these things as markers of spirituality and reasons to even look down upon others who didn't do things the same way that they did. You know, I remember back when the Lord had just saved me. And there was actually a, a brother, and he was a genuine believer, but he had a struggle with this particular area. He was always kind of publicizing in a very subtle way the things that he was doing. You know, one time he came in and, and he just looked disheveled and he looked like he was sick. And one of the other guys who was a fairly new believer too asked him, Brother, is, is everything okay? You look kind of, you look sick. Is everything okay? Can we pray for you? Oh, brother, it's fine, he answers. It's fine. It's just that I've been up in prayer all night. I just felt like I needed to do it as I was looking at the Word and going over the Word. He just talked very subtly about that. Eventually, that became kind of the pattern. He would always talk about the prayer. He was always at prayer meetings. He was always serving in different capacities, hitting people on the head when they weren't doing that. He was just became known as that kind of an individual. I remember riding up to a retreat one time with him, and he was talking to me about, about his practice of fasting. And eventually, as the conversation went on, it became very apparent he wasn't fasting for spiritual reasons. He was fasting just because he needed to go on a diet. See, there's individuals like that. Some who are more explicit, but maybe some of us who might struggle with more of a self-righteous attitude, always talking about the things that we do for the Lord, almost as if we're conscience-binding other people, that if it doesn't look for them the way that it looks for us, then there's something wrong with them, and they're not spiritual or mature enough, right? There's a danger in that in all of us. Now, we need to be careful here. Jesus was absolutely concerned as even Pastor Alex preached last week, on the importance of obedience. The Lord was not against obedience...
to the word of God in that day and each to the Mosaic law, the good and beneficial, perfect law of liberty, the law of God. He was not against obedience to God's commandments. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not do away with it, right? If you, in fact, if you're still there in the Sermon on the Mount, go back with me to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17 so that you can see Jesus was not against obedience to the law of Moses. Verse 17, do not think, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He came to fulfill the law. That is why you and I are no longer under the law, because we've been clothed in Christ who fulfilled the law perfectly and all the righteous requirements on our behalf, right? Jesus came to fulfill God's beautiful, good, beneficial law that was an expression of love for his father and love for your fellow neighbor, and he fulfilled it. What was he against? Look at verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He was against, beloved, a, a, an apostate Judaism, form of Judaism, that was more concerned about traditions and interpretations of rabbis over years, and even uh, constructing a hedge around the Mosaic law of do's and don'ts so that people wouldn't even get close to breaking the Mosaic law these rabbis did. That's what Jesus was countering. And so when he preaches, even on the Sermon on the Mount, and anything that he preaches, including our text, he gets to the heart of the matter and says, you guys are missing the intent of the law of what my Father put forward. Look at verse 21 of chapter 5. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, verse 22, that everyone who is angry, where? In his heart, right? Anyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And the the human courts are the least of our worries. Notice what he says. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. He gets to the heart of the matter. He says, none of this stuff about you're okay as long as you don't murder and you can be angry with your brother or sister in Christ. He says, you need to recognize you from the heart should not be angry or slanderous towards your brothers or sisters. Verse 23, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Jesus cuts to the chase, doesn't he? And gets to the heart of the matter and he says, none of this rabbinical tradition stuff. Let me talk about what my father's intention for his law was. That we deal with sin in the heart so that we never even become physical murderers, right? Don't be angry with your brother or sister in Christ. Verse 27, notice, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. That's a quotation from Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, the law of Moses. But I say to you, verse 28, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her, where, beloved? In his heart. That's where it matters most to God. That's where he wants us to deal with sin at the root level. Verse 29, If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus says, take drastic measures to deal with your evil desire in your heart so that you don't ever manifest physical adultery where you're unfaithful to your spouse. He hits to the issue of the heart, doesn't he? Look at verse 31. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And so by Jesus' day, the rabbis are looking at this and and they start putting forward um, these, these instructions that you can leave your spouse for any reason. Ladies, if you cooked a bad meal, your husband could leave you. If you didn't have the house clean, tip top shape, your husband can leave you, give you a certificate of divorce. See you later, baby. Right? People could divorce one another for all kinds of reasons. Men could leave women that way. So Jesus says, notice in verse 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And on and on the list goes in the Sermon on the Mount, beloved. Jesus is saying it's not about your interpretations of the law. Let me tell you that God was always about the heart. 
And it is not about you simply doing these things on the outside, looking good to people while not dealing with your heart. God always has wanted devotion from the heart that leads to outward, genuine obedience. You see, the Judaism of the day had become religious formalism. An externalistic, hypocritical, man-pleasing kind of a practicing of even God's commandments that didn't hit at the core of the root of a person's sin. And religious formalism, beloved, is something that we too need to be careful in our day and age, isn't it? That we would not be externalistic, religious formalists whose heart is not for God and devoted to God. So, let me ask you this week. Was your heart engaged in even your personal time in the Word and prayer before the Lord? I mean, were you really there? You might have been physically there before God, saying that you're spending time with Him. But was your heart engaged as far as really treasuring and and delighting in the Lord? Did you worship God in spirit and in truth this week? Let me ask you this morning, as our team of brothers and sisters led us up here, was your heart engaged when we were singing the songs that we were singing? Were you thinking about the songs that they chose so carefully to be songs that that direct our hearts to our, our exalted King, the Lord Jesus Christ? Were you thinking about the implications of the truth and maybe passages that come to mind and how good has been to you so that you were exuberantly, genuinely from the heart crying out to God, praising Him? What about during the greeting time? Or maybe in conversations that you've already had this morning. Were you truly, truly happy to see that person that you talked to and greeted? Or were you just putting on a show and an act on the outside? Were you really happy to see that person? Or were you just being fake and a phony? Were you just going through the motions? When you tell people you are praying for them, let me ask you this. Are you really doing it? Or is it just a formal way of you kind of looking good, appearing spiritual or pious? Or are you genuinely praying for that person that you're telling them, I've been praying for you? See, we have to be so careful with religious formalism, don't we? That was the problem in Jesus' day. And that is exactly what Jesus preached so hard against complacency and lethargy and passivity and people thinking that they can honor God with their lips, but their hearts were far from them, as Isaiah says. That's what Jesus confronted. So let me ask you in your service to the Lord. There are areas where you are serving, formally and informally. Is your heart really doing it because you counted a privilege to serve Christ? Out of a response to His his grace toward you, His unmerited favor toward you, you've done nothing to gain your salvation, to gain any merit before Him. He died on the cross for you because He loves you. Do you count it a privilege to serve Him even when it's hard and people don't reciprocate your service back to you? Are you serving with joy? Is it a joy and a delight for you to serve Christ and serve His people? Or are you doing doing it drudgingly? Are you doing it in a burdensome kind of way? See, beloved, we need to reject religious formalism. It's a respectable sin amongst us. In every church, there is the danger of that. In every single one of us, that we are truly worshiping God in spirit and truth out of love for Him and love for other people. Amen? That's what we need to be about. You remember the church at Laodicea? And Jesus' words in Revelation 3 to the church at Laodicea, you know what your problem is, Laodiceans? You are lukewarm, he says. You're neither hot, you're neither cold. He says, I will spit you out of my mouth because you're neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm. And Jesus doesn't like, or nobody likes a, a, a lukewarm cup of coffee. Amen? Either give it to me cold or give it to me warm, right? Nice and hot. Jesus doesn't like hearts that are lukewarm. He rejects hearts that are cold. He wants fervent, passionate, zealous people for him. And that's what he says. Repent, he says. Repent of your lukewarmness and be zealous for me. To the church at Laodicea. He doesn't want religious formalism from any of us. And that was what was characteristic of the Judaism, the apostate aspect of Judaism of Jesus' day. And so we see this judgmental inquisition, and it surrounds the issue of fasting. But next we see the master surgeon, beloved, go to work, right? 
And the second point, his gracious instruction in verses 19 through 22. You know, the more that I study the Gospels over the years, the more that I keep thinking about Proverbs 20, verse 5, with regards to our Lord Jesus. Proverbs 20 and verse 5 says this, A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. In other words, a man of wisdom and a man of understanding knows how to dissect the heart of a person. Get be, you ever meet those kinds of people? They just are so wise and so understanding that they ask the right questions. They know how to listen well. They get to the root issue. They know that maybe your initial complaint or problem that you have or things that you're struggling with is just a surface issue. There's a root problem. And they get to the heart of it. And then lovingly, even if they have to say the hard things, they get to that and they address the root issue, concern, struggle that you're having. You ever met people like that? Our Lord was the perfect God-man who did that so, so well, according to Proverbs 20 and verse 5. And so what we see in verses 19 through 22 is this. Listen, Jesus, who is all wise, who knows the hearts of men, he uses three familiar illustrations. And the three illustrations in verses 19 through 22 are designed to expose both their misunderstanding of who he is and the exclusivity of his kingdom. That's what the purpose of those illustrations that he uses. To expose the fact that their question, their surface question of fasting, it isn't even about that. It's the fact that they don't understand at the heart level in their struggle who Jesus is and the exclusivity of his kingdom. That's why what the, what the function of these three illustrations are. Look at the first one in verse 19 of a wedding feast. Jesus answers their question about fasting and he said to them in verse 19, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. They ask him, Jesus, why are your disciples not fasting? Jesus says, suppose there's a wedding. Suppose that there's a three to seven day Jewish wedding. What is characteristic of a Jewish wedding? Everybody knew it. Everybody knew this. These individuals would have known three to seven days of absolute celebration and bliss. And the attendance of the bridegroom, really the, the, um, the, the wedding party would be rejoicing with the bridegroom and with the bride for all of these days. There will be singing and laughing and dancing and drinking of the best kind of wine. Everybody knew this. There were even rabbis in that day and age or before that that forbid individuals from fasting at a wedding party because there was always the stick in the mud people who wanted to abstain from and forbid people to feast during weddings. Even some of the rabbis understood this. And so Jesus said, listen, it's appropriate and fitting and absolutely acceptable That at a wedding, people are in celebration mode. And because I am the bridegroom and I am here, that is why they are celebrating. They are absolutely focused upon me, not concerned about fasting right now. That's what Jesus is saying. He's the bridegroom. The attendants are his disciples, the wedding party. And they are in the midst of celebration. And I think what Jesus is getting at here is this. The disciples aren't violating anything. It's fitting and appropriate at a wedding to do this. The problem, the deeper problem that Jesus was addressing, beloved, with this illustration is this. The reason why these individuals couldn't rejoice and couldn't celebrate in the same way is because they didn't understand who Jesus is, the Messiah, the King, the Son of God, and therefore they weren't locating their joy in Him at that moment. Because when Jesus is present... Similar to the story in Luke 9 of Mary and Martha. Martha's running around serving and all of that. And Jesus confronts her because she's being a stressed out woman in all of her service. What is Mary doing when Jesus is present? She is absolutely enthralled by him, devoted to him, fixed and focused upon him. When Jesus is present in the Gospels, he is the priority. Nothing else matters. Everything else is periphery, peripheral. Everything else is secondary. And that is the way that it should be in life, right? If we are in him and he is in us, then there's nothing that should trump exalting Christ. It is de-elevation of self and exaltation of Jesus as believers. Amen? So Jesus is saying, relax. This is a wedding. It is fitting, appropriate that everyone should celebrate. I'm the bridegroom. My disciples are the attendants. I'm the king. I am here and I'm introducing a kingdom that is not of this world. It is time to celebrate. And they can't do it because they're not focused upon him, beloved. They're focused upon the shadow and not the substance who is Christ. 
And this can happen for us even in a practical way as believers. When we focus our attention on other things, we maybe even focus our attention on our performance, and we're not doing it from the heart, for the glory of God, uh, uh, on, the, on the shoulders of what Jesus' gracious work on the cross for us, and therefore it's a response of loving obedience to Him. When we're not doing it with that motivation, beloved, then we lose our joy. And it becomes about us rather than about Christ. It becomes all about our performance. And we forget that in Christ we are complete, aren't we? It is in Jesus that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 1, he says that, that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. When we're not focused upon our union and relationship with Christ, but on externalistic religious formalism, we will be sucked dry of our joy and not rejoice in life. And I submit to you that for many of us, that is the heart problem of why we are joyless. Why we are so focused on the externals. Devoid of heart, because our hearts are not rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. Paul said in, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, you've been saved, so walk in Him. Live in Him. Live in the light of His salvation of you. It is not that you're saved at the point of conversion by grace in G- through Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ alone, and then you live your life according to your own performance and by your own moral bootstraps. It's all about grace, even in our obedience. Amen? It's all about that. Well, that's Jesus' point there. They're missing Him. Now notice the second illustration in verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth in an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. What's this illustration all about? seems from right field. Well, people knew in those days that if you tried to sew a piece of new fabric onto an old garment, then that new patch would shrink when it would be washed. And what would happen? Some of you ladies know this. That new piece of, of cloth would pull away from the old garment, and it would make matters worse. And ruin the whole thing. And I think what our Lord is saying here, His point is that He doesn't come introducing and preaching the gospel of the kingdom simply to to patch up apostate Judaism. Their man-made religion, but to completely replace everything. Christ's way is completely different than their apostate Judaism. It's not about the religion of, of works, salvation. It's all of grace. And Jesus came to introduce that. And His way cannot be mixed. It is incompatible with the religion of that day. That's what He's talking about here. Remember, these illustrations are meant to point to truth. They're like parables, right? Parables, literally uh, an illustration thrown alongside of truth to bring truth to bear upon people. That's what He's getting at here. The same with the third illustration in verse 22, if you notice. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skin as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. In those days, animal skin, like the, like the skin of goats, would be used um, uh, for, as containers for liquids, including wine. But then with age, what would happen with these containers is that they would harden, they would lose their flexibility and elasticity. And so common wisdom of the day said, you don't put new wine which ferments and expands into old wineskins. Why? Because as that new wine ferments and expands in the old wineskin, the old wineskin would burst, that thing would be ruined, and so would the wine be ruined and wasted, right? And so what is Jesus' point here? What I bring... And my way, my preaching of the gospel of the kingdom is not a reformed version of your religion, of what you are doing. Beloved, listen, Jesus' kingdom, his gospel, his way was completely new, different, incompatible with the apostate religion of the day that was a works-based salvation. And Jesus is saying, the two can't merge. You don't mix both of these things together. It's not about your man-made traditions, self-imposed rules, external formalism, and then you just sprinkle a little bit of me and everything's okay. Jesus, 
or they were focused on external formalism, what did Jesus come preaching? He came preaching heart transformation and inner devotion that would lead to long-lasting, real, genuine obedience from the heart, right? Their religion couldn't do that. Where the law is emphasized, grace doesn't abound. They were focused on pleasing God with their self-justifying acts. What was Jesus preaching? Jesus was preaching free grace. Free grace, forgiveness in Him alone, not on the basis of anything that anyone did. Follow me. I will forgive you of your sins, regardless of anything that you do. Follow me. Commit to following me for the rest of your life. Repent. Turn from living for yourself and put your trust in me alone. They put, they put their trust in their own works. That was what characterized the religion of the day. They were focused on exalting themselves above others by their practices. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was preaching and modeling a genuine spirit-empowered love toward their fellow neighbors, including their enemies whom they rejected under their apostate Judaism. Jesus came to, to make all things new. And he's saying, it's, it's me or the highway. That's what Je- Jesus is the only person who's ever walked on the face of this planet who can say that. You either follow me exclusively or I will have no part with you. That's what he's telling them through these three illustrations. So he's saying, rejoice because I'm here. Don't try to mix me with your apostate religion. They are incompatible. I'm not here to reform, but to completely replace your salvation by works religion. Trust in me alone. Listen to this quote. Jesus is not an attachment, addition, or appendage to the status quo. He cannot be integrated into or contained by pre-existing structures. The question posed by the image of the wedding feast and the two Adam-like parables is not whether the disciples will, like sewing a new patch on an old garment or refilling an old container, make room for Jesus in their already full agendas and lives. The question is whether they will forsake business as usual and join the wedding celebration, whether they will become entirely new receptacles for the expanding fermentation of Jesus and the gospel in their lives. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the call of the gospel of grace that I preach is absolutely exclusive. You cannot, beloved, combine even in our pluralistic day and age today where nobody can tell you what is true, uh, that, that something that you're saying is not true. Whatever is true to you is true for you and nobody could argue with that. If it's true to you and you feel that way and you feel tingling sensations in your tummy that it's true, then who's there to tell you otherwise? Listen, Jesus did not come to be combined with any other religion, Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, present-day Judaism. We do not merge or mix Jesus with any other religion. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. There is no other name except the name of Christ, whereby people can be saved, Acts 4.12, right? No other religion. You cannot combine some religion and sprinkle a little Jesus seasoning on it, and God is okay with that. You can't do that. You cannot hold to your self-imposed man-made rules and traditions in a way that justifies you or your preferences as if they make you better than other people and you sprinkle a little Jesus on them and somehow God is okay with that. You simply cannot do it. You cannot think that your good works or humanitarian efforts grant you some merit or favor with God and as long as you sprinkle a little Jesus right? A little Jesus on your church attendance or on your tithing and all of that, but you've never repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, then you are okay. God will not accept you based upon your own human merits. It's all about what Christ did, his perfect life, his atoning death, and his glorious resurrection, putting our trust and faith in him. He alone justifies. It's all in Christ alone that salvation comes. He alone justifies. Christianity or being a part of God's kingdom has nothing to do, beloved, with what you or I have done or will ever do, even as believers. It's all about Christ and who He is and what He has done. It is Christ plus nothing except an empty hand of faith, not just at the moment of conversion when you come and say, Oh, Lord, save me, but even in your sanctification, the ongoing process of becoming more and more like Jesus, it's all on the shoulders of the grace of Christ that you are able even to obey out of a heart of gratitude and love. It's all about Him from beginning to end until you stand before God the Father someday and He accepts you on the shoulders of the grace of Jesus Christ alone, not on the basis of even your obedience after having come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
It's all about Christ alone. That's what the Protestant Reformation was all about. It's not just Christ plus this or Christ, Christ plus that or Christ plus my performance or my preferences that I impose on Scripture. It's Christ alone or nothing or you don't have salvation, you understand. This is why we must be careful. If we learn one huge lesson, beloved, from this text is this. Do not go beyond what stands written. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 5-7. through 7, Paul uses that language. Don't go beyond what stands written in exalting one man over another in that context. But it's true for all of life, beloved. Let's zero in on what the Bible says. See, these folks in Jesus' day that confront him had begun perhaps with a good desire, many of them. The desire to be devout, maybe even encourage devotion in the lives of others, but they had gone beyond what stood written in God's law, and they had created their own apostate religion with even a hedge of do's and don'ts so that people wouldn't even get close to the law of Moses of breaking the law of Moses. They had created their own self-made religion, their traditions, and imposing them as heavy burdens upon others. This is why you and I need to be careful not to become proud Listen to me, beloved, and champion causes that are not biblical and not clearly stated in God's word. Areas that fall into the area of wisdom, where principles from God's word arise and there's freedom and liberty within God's people to, in a holy, Christ-like way, apply those principles in very different ways depending on individuals or families or groups within the church. Let's be careful not to champion things like a certain way of dress above another. What is the principle? Modesty in all things, right? And love for your brother and sister in Christ. That's the principle. Let's be careful not to herald things, external things like makeup or no makeup. The less makeup that you wear as a woman or you never wear any makeup, well, you're a lot more spiritual than the other woman who does put a little makeup. As one pastor said, it's okay to put some, some paint on the barn once in a while, right? He said it. I didn't say it. If you want to know who it is talk to him certain methods of educating our kids where we can or should only live where we go for fun or recreation beloved there are principles that 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 inform those things and there's freedom and liberty and the motivation of love and and the glory of god and and what is thoughtful and loving for our fellow brothers and sisters that that inform and shape the practice of those issues of liberty amongst us well, see, we champion things that have the appearance of godliness and that become sort of markers of spirituality amongst us, but they are nothing more than your own personal preferences. That's what they are. And what happens? You become, they become, thus saith the Lord pronouncements with some of you guys. And what happens then? We alienate ourselves from others. Others from ourselves, instead of focusing our attention on the riches that we have in Jesus and the implications of holiness as we stand upon the shoulders of the saving grace of Christ, right? Got to be so careful. And stop thinking about others right now. I know my own, the tendency in my own heart when I'm in Scripture, I begin to think, oh, this would be good for that person to hear. Oh, that's something that that family is really struggling with right now personalize this are there areas in your personal life in the life of your family within groups that you're around that hold to non-biblical standards or preferences that have alienated you or others from you even if you haven't explicitly wanted those things to alienate you from them or vice versa do those exist and maybe today is the day of repentance for you to confess those before the Lord and even ask for forgiveness if you've made somebody else feel that way amongst us. Let's be careful, beloved, with legalism. There is a subtle danger of legalism in every single one of us, including Christians. What is legalism? Legalism involves any non-biblical activity, ritual, practice that you believe, A, gains you some merit before God, or C, even preferences, or B, makes you better than other people, even if you tend to think that subtly and in a passive kind of way. That's how legalism rears its ugly head in your heart. Legalism rears its ugly head anytime we simply go through the motions 
and succumb to religious formalism where we sing and we give and we play the game of being kind to others, but our heart is disengaged in all of these things. That is religious formalism, a form of legalism. We are falling into legalism when we become external formalists rather than internal worshipers devoted to God in spirit and in truth. You want a good litmus test to see if you have legalistic tendencies? Ready for this? Here are some checkpoints. One, be known for making rules outside the Bible or beyond the Bible. Be known for making rules outside the Bible or beyond the Bible. See, legalism is living by man-made rules. It's not that obedience to God's word is legalistic. Absolutely not. God wants obedience out of a heart of gratitude for his grace and his love shown toward us, right? Secondly, push yourself to try and keep your man-made rules. Make them issues a burden when you keep your non-biblical standards or preferences and impose them on others that way. You know, 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. God's Word, even though it may feel it is hard to obey many times, it is not burdensome. It is an expression of love for Him, and He gives us those commandments, beloved, for our good, that we would experience His blessing. But legalism isn't, doesn't receive any blessing when you follow man-made rules. Doesn't bring any blessing. It brings you live guilt-ridden, law-driven, rather than grace-fueled in your sanctification. Three, punish yourself when you don't keep your rules. Punish yourself and others when you don't keep your rules. Some of us, frankly, have imported some Roman Catholicism, maybe from our baggage in the past. Or we we are always guilt-ridden. As soon as we do something wrong, there is penitence before God, trying to score brownie points before the Lord, rather than the opposite of penitence, biblical, genuine repentance from the heart, where we're renewed in the spirit of our mind based upon what Jesus did on the cross already for us, and we respond in loving obedience. That's repentance. Penitence is about, I need to now work my way back to gain favor with God, or He's going to love me. I did some bad things, so I'm going to now do ten good things to make sure... We don't even think that way, but that's how many of us live. Fourth, become proud when you do keep your rules. When you do keep your man-made rules, right? Become proud. Like the self-righteous Pharisee in Luke chapter 18, right? I'm thankful that I don't do all of these things. And Lord, that I'm not like this tax collector, big sinner. You're legalistic when you're always about a competitive spirit and you become proud and you compare yourself to others, how you measure yourself to other people. It's good to look for examples in the church and to be discipled by those who are wiser than you. Titus chapter 2, amen? That is disciple making. It is wrong when all of a sudden you're doing those things with the motivation that you want to be known as a spiritual person, a very mature person. And you want personal accolades for that. Fifth, appoint yourself as a judge over other people who don't keep your rules. You want to know if you have legalistic tendencies? Be a conscience binder. Run around binding people's conscience, making them feel guilty because they don't do this enough or they don't do that enough or they're never at this event or they're never at that event. Is it good to encourage people to be a part of the body of Christ for the glory of God and their good and the mutual edification of their brethren? Absolutely, if that's your motivation. But be careful that you are not setting yourself up as a standard of because I do all of these things, everybody should do them. And if you guys are not, you ought to be ashamed of yourselves. Shame on you. Conscience binding right? That doesn't lead to love and grace-fueled service in people's lives. It might for a while, but it will not be long-lasting because there's no heart change there. Get angry with people who break your rules or have different rules. There's another one. Just get angry. Lash out at people or you know what? Do the opposite. Just avoid people who don't do things the way that you do them. That's another form of anger too. Frustration. I'm just going to stay away from them. They don't do things the way that I do them. And they're reaping the, benefit, the, the repercussions of it. And you just stay away from people like that. Seventh, beat the losers. You want to know if you have legalistic tendencies? Beat the losers. You're always, always seeking to win. Always competing. Always competing in your service. 
rather than it being about mutual edification and, and wanting your brethren to, to thrive because they have spiritual gifts and, it, and they ought to be utilizing those spiritual gifts and they're a gift to the church. And brother, sister, I want you to be totally fulfilled in glorifying God with what He's given you and I want what is best for you so that you reap the benefits of using those gifts and you experience the joy that I'm experiencing when we use our gifts out of love for the edification of your brother and sister in Christ. That's a different kind of an attitude, isn't it? Then you know what? I'm glad that I'm using my gifts. Boy, those bad people, they never use their gifts. I'm much better than them. Or I'm doing ten things and they're only doing eight. Listen, I realize that those are kind of caricatures that are kind of extreme and parabolic a little bit, right? But listen to me, beloved. We tend to think along those trains of thought. So check yourself. Let me ask you these questions in closing. Is it obvious that I've been internally transformed and not merely externally conformed? Ask yourself this or ask somebody who loves you. Hey, is it obvious that I've been internally transformed and not merely externally conformed? Do I show evidence of that? Secondly, am I focused more on what people see and think of me or what God sees and thinks of me? Am I a man-pleaser or I'm a God-fearer and I'm concerned about what God sees in the heart? Am I about fearing God or fearing others? Third, ask yourself this question. As I deal with people, am I a plush, soft towel or a thorny cactus? As I deal with people, am I known for love? Am I a plush, soft towel or a thorny cactus? Are you pleasant to be around as a brother or sister in Christ? All of us have work to do in this, right? Or are you thorny, always looking like you're sucking on a lemon? And maybe you don't look that way on the outside, but maybe in your heart, that is the way that, you, that you, your heart disposition, and it shows itself in so many different ways. And you may walk around with a smile sometimes, but you really aren't genuinely from the heart loving people. Finally, this question, am I inflexible on truth, but flexible in preference like Christ? Listen to that again. Am I inflexible on truth? That means I'm not going to compromise truth, but I'm going to be flexible in preference like Jesus was? Or am I flexible on truth? I'm willing to compromise on the truth, but I'm utterly inflexible in preference like the Pharisees. Think about that. Am I inflexible on truth, but flexible in preference like Jesus? Or flexible on truth but inflexible in my preferences like the Pharisees. That's what they were characterized by, trumping on their traditions and preferences. Beloved, what we learn from this text is that when we understand who Jesus is and the exclusivity of his kingdom, then we will live with joy and rest completely upon him for eternal security, right? We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. So Christian, let me ask you this question. Are you fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, even as a believer? Is it about what Christ has accomplished so that that motivates you and propels you out of love and gratitude for his grace in your life to walk in loving obedience to him? Is it about Christ for you? Is it about exalting Christ or lifting yourself, exalting yourself still even as a believer? As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, Colossians 2.6. Christ alone is our life, beloved. Are you rejoicing in him alone, resting upon him alone? And if you are not a Christian this morning, let me tell you something. There's a lot of talk about joy and rejoicing and all of that, but there are many, many people depressed and miserable in their hearts who don't have Jesus Christ today, and you know some of those people who they are in our society. Listen, who they need is Jesus Christ. They don't need more money. They don't need more materialism. They don't need the right kinds of friends or relationships. They don't need more popularity. They need to give their lives to Christ so that they may experience true joy the joy of Christmas found in Jesus Christ. And then there's other people, don't be fooled on social media or on national television or out in the world who look very, very happy without Jesus. Listen, those pleasures will soon pass away and there will be sorrow and mourning and worse, weeping and gnashing of teeth for eternity because life truly begins after you die physically. That's where life begins. 
And if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, you haven't turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, there is nothing that you're seeking right now outside of Christ. More friends, more materialism, more toys to own, more popularity, more whatever, the right kinds of relationships or friendships. None of those things will ultimately deal with your heart problem, which is that you are at enmity with God and you need to be reconciled to your maker by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Repent this morning from your sins. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. He is the reason for this season, isn't he? Truly. Let me pray for us as our brother comes up. Father, thank you for the fact that you have sent your son into the world, the one that we have the opportunity to focus upon. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to focus our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, I pray that for those who don't have their eyes fixed upon him this morning, who have not given their lives to him, that, Lord, today would be the day of repentance, that today would be the day of salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.